Hello, and welcome to the official relaunch of the Wirecast, the official podcast of the Wisconsin International Review, a student-run foreign policy and international relations magazine, or The Wire for short, now on the WSUM Podcast Network. On The Wire today, we sat down with Jonathan Godinez, who is president of the Latinx Badgers at UW-Madison, to discuss Governor Tony Evers' recent budget proposal to extend in-state tuition at UW System schools to certain undocumented residents of Wisconsin. But first, as always, we will have our roundtable wire service section where we discuss the stories that have defined the international news agenda for this week. My name is Sam Beisman, editor and podcast host for The Wire, and I'm joined here in the studio by Emily Janik. Janicek. Janicek. You know what? We were talking about it before we went on air. <laughs> And I told you that I was going to get it wrong. So, That's okay. Most people do. Right. I'm making good on my promises. Emily, thank you so much for being here in the studio with us for the official relaunch of the Wirecast. Of course. I'm very happy to be here. So could you tell us about yourself a little bit? What are some of your own international interests and what are you studying here at the university? Yeah. So I'm a sophomore here at UW-Madison and I'm double majoring in economics and German with a certificate in public policy. And in terms of international interests, I am particularly interested in European politics and foreign finance, trade, and mainly public policy. All right. And I understand that you received some pretty exciting news this morning. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. I was accepted into my first choice study abroad program at the Wirtschaft Universität Wien, which is the Vienna School of Business and Economics. Nice. Congratulations. Thank you. How do you say have a safe trip in German? Um, gute Reisen, which is good travels. There we go. Good travels indeed. And speaking of good travels, the first topic that we want to jump in today is Brexit, in which the UK and Theresa May's parliament has actually been seeing some pretty rocky travels for themselves. Yes, that's very true. Recently, parliament has just, has rejected Theresa May's deal with the EU for the third time. And now they're just sort of in this limbo of what to do, because on April 12th, if they do not come to a decision... They, there's just a hard Brexit and there's no trade deal as to what will happen. In which they would just be completely dropped from the EU with no type of free trade relationship with any of the bloc. Yeah. Be potentially devastating to the economy, disrupting of trade and the flow of people in and outside of the EU, correct? Yes. There is a large question as to what will happen with the Northern Ireland border and also EU members that are living within Britain right now as to what will happen with their rights and generally how relations will go on. So I've heard that in the latest round of Brexit talks, there were eight plans that were all rejected by Parliament. Is, is this correct? Yes, that is correct. Um, so I can explain them. So the first one was a no deal Brexit, basically where it's just hard Brexit. Um, and that's default option on April 12th. And Parliament has already rejected leaving the EU without a deal. So it's sort of, um, we'll see what will happen. But there, the second option is known as the common market 2.0. And this is a very like soft Brexit 
proposal. So the UK and the EU would still have very close economic ties, and this is the model for Norway, and um, it's also known as the Norway Plus. So this would allow the EU to have um, access access to a single market and there'd be a free movement of goods, capital and services and people. And the plus here would be meaning that they'd be joining a customs union. And this was also defeated. The third option is the Norway option. And it's the same plan as the Norway plus, but without the plus. So there's no customs arrangement. And um, another option is a customs union, which would allow for membership um, in a post-Brexit. So the UK would follow all EU customs rules. And this was the most popular plan. It got 264 yes votes and only 272 no votes. So it only lost by eight votes. So since Parliament has rejected Theresa May's deal three times at this point, this is the most likely plan moving forward if they decide to not do a hard Brexit. And um, Jeremy Corbyn proposed the labor plan, which focuses on a future relationship that would only have custom unions membership. And the UK would be able to make its own trade deals. So it would allow for an alignment of single market rules and choose for cooperation on issues like security and with certain EU institutions. But the problem is the EU might not want this because it would cherry pick the UK in certain situations and it lost 200, 237 votes to 307, so a little bit more popular than the others. Another more popular plan is to revoke Article 50 and Article 50 is the mechanism in the European Union's Lisbon Treaty that the EU is using to leave the bloc. So this sort of revokes the legality of Brexit um, and it, there would be no hard deadline after revoking Article 50. And this leads into the seventh choice, which would be a second referendum. So this says that any Brexit deal approved by Parliament would have to go back to the public for a vote. And this was the most popular plan, um, or it, it received the most I votes with 268, but 295 people voted against it, so it was defeated by a greater margin than the customs union. And the last option is a managed no deal. So it's similar to a plan that the EU has already rejected, which would basically be the UK leaving the EU without a deal. And there would still be a transition period where the two sides would negotiate free trade agreements, but this was very, very unpopular and it received 139 I votes to 422 nay votes. All right. So it sounds like our best two options as they stand are either the customs union or opposition leader Corbyn's plan to put any past Brexit plan to a referendum after it's passed by the parliament. Going forward, do you think one of these two options will eventually be what Parliament settles on as their Brexit plan? Or do you think we're destined for a hard deadline because of gridlock? The optimist in me would like to say that hopefully they would hold another referendum um, and either have a referendum on a new plan they design and let the people vote or just a referendum on whether to go through with Brexit or not. But Given that the deadline is April 12th, which is very soon, I think 
since there's so much political gridlock, there will just be a hard Brexit, which will hurt the UK's economy and just relations with other countries in the EU and around the world. Well, speaking of gridlock, I want to talk about what kind of seems to me like a rock and a hard place (laughs) that the EU is in, and that's the idea of repealing Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, because as you mentioned, that is the article that sets the deadline for a country that's trying to leave the European Union bloc, but it's also the legal mechanism by which a company would leave the bloc. So it seems to me that it's kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater in the sense that, yes, we're repealing we're, we're getting rid of the deadline, but we're getting rid of the deadline by removing the entirety of the legal process of leaving the European Union. And that, to me, kind of sounds like a whole lot of uncertainty and, pose- and potential disaster, really, when we eliminate any type of legal structure for this Brexit process. I mean, we can think of how turbulent it is right now. Imagine just how wild it would be if there was no treaty or written international law to guide it in the first place. Yes, I think that if Article 50 is revoked, there will be very negative implications for both Britain and the EU, because if there's no legal structure as to what to do, Parliament might just break down and not vote on anything, and it will send the UK into a tailspin. It will affect their economy, their markets, and especially with European Union citizens who live in the UK, they'll be in such a limbo that it will be difficult to get anything done. So I would hope that they do not revoke Article 50 and try and stick to the April 12th deadline. And then looking towards kind of a the, a different plan in that proposing a new referendum to see if people want to still leave the EU this again has many many both many British citizens and politicians have called for it and it seems like especially considering the popularity of Jeremy Corbyn's proposed plan that at least the idea of posing this issue again to the citizenry is gaining some traction in one form or another but where does that leave the original referendum and people who supported it? And I guess more broadly, what does that mean for ideas of democracy? Yes. So with Jeremy Corbyn's plan and the customs union, more British people are leaning towards that at this point. And I think if they held another referendum, I believe that they would decide not to leave the EU. But then you run into this problem of... Britain threatened to leave the EU and they started the talks. So I'd like to know if the EU would even want to accept them back at this point. And for the idea of democracy, Britain has always been iffy about being in the European Union. They joined late and haven't been the most active people within it. I think obviously they would maintain their democracy, but they're acting out of their own will for their own good right now and not for the greater good of the European Union. So I'm not sure how nicely the EU would treat them back. Yeah, it kind of sounds to me like the UK is just acting like a bad boyfriend here. Yeah. You know, really reluctant to get together in the first place and then not really committed during the relationship and then decides to leave. But, oh, here they come crawling back to Mm -hmm. the EU. Maybe. We'll... 
We'll see. Time will only tell. Time will only tell. And with that, we are going to move into the second story that's been defining the international news agenda this week. The upcoming Israeli elections, which are to take place on April 9th. Yes. So like I mentioned before, my interest is in European politics, but Sam, yours is not. So could you give me a little context as to what's happening with these elections? Who are the front runners and some of like the driving issues? Of course, of course. So first of all, what's important to understand about Israel is that we are dealing with a unicameral legislature here, the Knesset, which has 120 seats and is currently being controlled by a coalition government of right-wing orthodox parties led by Prime Minister Benjamin Bibi Netanyahu of the Likud party. And the elections are coming up on April 9th, and this is actually an early election because the Knesset was actually dissolved and now early elections have been called. So these tensions started brewing in March of 2018 when Defense Minister Avangor Lieberman of the Israeli Binetu Party opposed a draft of a law that was supported by this conservative Orthodox coalition that would exempt Torah students from conscriptionary service in the Israeli Defense Force. And His defection from this law brewed a lot of tension in the legislature and actually led to the initial introduction of a bill on March 12th of 2018 that would dissolve the Knesset, which was introduced by a couple of left-wing and centrist parties. This bill didn't actually generate really any traction and didn't really lead to any type of significant political change, but political tensions kept brewing from there when Lieberman withdrew his Yisrael Binyatu party from that conservative coalition over the over Benjamin Netanyahu's negotiation of a ceasefire with Hamas located in Gaza. And as a result, this negated the political strength of that orthodox majority down to 61 seats of the 120 seat majority. And as tensions continued to brew, they kept losing supporters and losing power until they could not govern anymore. Eventually, elections were called, and now we are approaching this early election date on April 9th. So looking at the kind of state of the elections right now, Netanyahu's Likud party was actually behind Benny Gantz's Kadol Leum party, but now they are actually, recent polls are showing that they are tied looking at achieving and picking up 30 seats apiece, which likely means that Netanyahu will maintain his position as prime minister if elections shake out the way these polls think that they're going to. Okay, so obviously Netanyahu is in a really big position as prime minister, and he has a lot to balance between governing and also running a campaign. So what do you think his strategy to win more seats is? Well, Netanyahu actually has a pretty defined strategy when he's up against a political wall that we've seen him employ multiple times, both during his original terms as Israeli prime minister in the 90s and now that he has re-entered the office in the tw- in the 2010s and that is stoking existential fears Netanyahu has always framed elections in a sense of Israel versus existential threats and he has positioned himself as the only person who can deliver both the country and the Israeli people from these threats. So he has been employing a lot of similar rhetoric both to 
amplify his own personal position and to also amplify these existential fears uh, that may be plaguing certain Israeli citizens. Multiple Israeli newspapers have been reporting that he has been increasing certain anti-Arabic rhetoric in, in this effort of stoking these existential fears and whatnot. And also, he has been making the appeal that he is the only one that can work with the United States and, most importantly, Donald Trump, to achieve things that are in the interest of the Israeli people. Most notably, we have seen the two work together to achieve what have been really historic gains in the eyes of Israel, including moving the American embassy to Jerusalem and also the recent declaration that happened only this week of President Donald Trump recognizing the Golan Heights, which is a mountainous region in northeast Israel under the sovereignty of Israel, whereas the territory had been disputed between them and Syria since the 20th century. So Netanyahu has really been playing up his personality as the only person who can work with Donald Trump specifically to achieve gains like these. There's been actually some pretty pretty interesting ways of trying to establish this. We've seen multiple story-high billboards of the two men locked in embraces, cropping up across major cities across the country, just kind of amplifying the personality of both of these men. Um, the, the literally larger-than-life figures are serving as what Netanyahu would like to be a reminder to the Israeli people of what he is able to achieve and what he would be able to achieve if his party is continually supported. Yeah, so given Netanyahu's previous experience in office and his current campaign strategy and comparisons with Donald Trump, who do you think will win this round of elections? What party? And also, what do you think the implications of the results of this election would be? Well, the polls were very, very tight and originally showed Netanyahu's Likud party trailing certain other opposition parties. But I think that recent events are going to be able to play into Netanyahu's narrative and campaign style. Perhaps most notably, as the BBC reports, on March 25th, a Gaza rocket hit a community just 12 miles north of Tel Aviv and injured seven people. And as a result, this is playing into Netanyahu's hand very, very well, because he is going to be able to use this to continue stoking these existential fears and continue playing into his campaign that way. And the Golan Heights recognition by the United States is huge. This has been territory that has been disputed for decades. This is a huge win, not just for Israel, but for Netanyahu and his party. So both the amplification of these threats on one hand, and also this major delivery from the United States and Netanyahu on the other, the stars are kind of aligning where this is only going to accelerate and propel the momentum that the party has been seeing already. And what that would mean for Israel is mostly a continuation of the status quo. But I think the more interesting implication is that Netanyahu has long been entangled in multiple corruption scandals. And actually, last month, Israel's attorney general announced that he plans to indict Netanyahu on charges of bribery and fraud. It's likely that if his party were to maintain power, and if he were to continue serving as prime minister, it's very, very likely he would stand trial while serving as prime minister. 
And that could serve as nothing less than the largest constitutional crisis that Israel has ever faced. And I think that's the more interesting story moving forward if what the, if the visions that I'm seeing in my crystal ball are, are in fact correct. Speaking of Donald Trump, the last story that we'll be talking about today is the release of the Mueller report with um, the principal com- conclusions from the report. So do you want to give us a little context, Sam, as to what was released? Oh, for sure. So what has been released is Attorney General William Barr's summary of the key findings of the Mueller report. And this is the only thing that is required to be released from the Mueller report by law. The way the statute is written is that the special counsel, when their investigation is completed, has to release a report to the attorney general summarizing their key findings and explaining why they chose to investigate and indict certain people, but also why they chose to investigate but not indict other people. Because it is against FBI policy to speak on why investigations were open on people who were then not indicted, it is then the attorney general's responsibility to essentially filter that report and release any key findings that are in the public interest or new indictments. So the four-page letter that we got from William Barr is potentially the only thing that we will see from the Mueller report as it is the only thing that is required by law. And there are essentially two key takeaways from this report, primarily in the area of Russian collusion and cooperation, in which, according to William Barr, the special counsel found no evidence and no active collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. The William Barr's letter divulged that the special counsel broke this up into two different areas of inquiry, primarily within collaboration with Russian efforts to manipulate the American electorate through social media campaigns, notably through the Russian's Internet Research Agency, in which the report concluded that there was no collusion there, and also within the realm of working with the Russians to hack and then release emails from Democratic candidates like Hillary Clinton or DNC officials or other Democratic staffers in which, again, according to William Barr, the Mueller report found that there was no collusion and no cooperation. Where it gets a little more interesting is in the second area of the report in which Mueller talks about his investigations of obstruction of justice on behalf of the Trump administration. And according to William Barr, Mueller did not exonerate Trump from, but also did not conclude that Donald Trump obstructed justice, which is very peculiar. He's not charging him with a crime, but not clearing him of one either. William Barr then decided in his letter to take the extra step, and Barr noted that he has decided that what is discussed in the Fuller Mueller report, which again, the public has not seen, does not meet William Barr's standard to constitute obstruction of justice. And he notes in the letter that this is partially based off of the fact that there was no crime of collusion to obstruct to begin with. A lot of especially Democratic politicians have criticized this decision by William Barr as he is a political appointee of Donald Trump. And now 
many are demanding the release of the Mueller report in full. In fact, there was a non-binding House resolution that passed on a 422-0 vote calling for the release of the Mueller report in full. However, we haven't actually seen that bill. That bill has not been introduced to the Senate as it has been currently blocked by Mitch McConnell. But I understand that recent polling has kind of revealed the thoughts of Americans on this matter, correct? Yes. So with the confusion as to whether um, President Trump has obstructed justice or not, NPR ran some polls and they asked several questions about whether the American public is satisfied with the investigation, whether they think the report is enough, and as well as if the report will clear up whether President Trump has done anything wrong. So they asked the question, thinking about the findings of Special Counsel Mueller's report, do you think Attorney General Barr's public summary of the report is enough or whether the full report should be made public? And overall, 75% of the American public thought that the full report should be made available for um, interpretation and viewing. And it was interesting to look at the breakdown between Democrats, Republicans, and independents, with 90% of Democrats supporting um, the release of it, and 54% of Republicans also supporting the release of the report, which is over half. And the Republicans have taken a more relaxed stance and they believe that we should accept Attorney General Barr's findings. But they, shown by these numbers, they still want to see the full report to make their own conclusions. And it is very likely that despite that there is no legal requirement for additional information to come out, that more information will be released regarding this report. Multiple Democratic politicians have indicated that they are considering calling Attorney General William Barr to testify in front of Congress. Although when asked by reporters if they want to bring Robert Mueller to testify, they've been a little bit more skittish on the question. And Attorney General William Barr has indicated that he is still going through the document and is intending to release more details in the upcoming weeks. So considering that so many questions still exist, but that some information might still come out, what are the big questions that you have and that you're looking for to be answered? Yeah, so I would like to know to the extent which the Trump campaign knew what was going on in Russia and how much they knew um, about the Russians trying to influence the election through hacking and social media and spread of information. I agree with that in full. But what I'm looking, what I'm also interested in is some of the reasons why they made the conclusions related to Russian collaboration, because maybe this is just my bias as a journalism student, but adverbs jump out to me, right? And when we read from the letter, when discussing the potential involvement between the Trump campaign and the Russians regarding the hacking of emails, William Barr writes, writes, quote, the special counsel did not find that the Trump campaign or anyone associated with it conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in these efforts. But when they're writing about the alleged collusion between the Trump campaign and the Internet Research Agent, Russia's Internet Research Agency regarding online manipulation campaigns, he writes instead, quote, the special counsel did not find that any U.S. person or Trump campaign official or associate conspired or knowingly coordinated with the IRA in its efforts. 
knowingly jumps out at me there. And maybe that's just my bias to be adverse to all types of adverbs as a journalist student, but these are high-level Justice Department employees, the top-level Justice Department employees and lawyers with Ivy League degrees. So this word has to be chosen carefully, knowingly, right? And what that suggests to me is, and that's, it supports the hypothesis that there was a certain lack of political experience and savvy in the Trump campaign that prevented them from doing so. Because if we remember back to 2016, the GOP field was incredibly crowded. And Donald Trump, at the beginning of his campaign, was not really considered a legitimate candidate. He was more considered just some kind of long-form political joke or that his campaign was some kind of publicity stunt. So the people who eventually signed on to his campaign were not your top-level Republican operatives. Rather, they were kind of the island of unwanted toys of the conservative legal and political world. So when we think of the type of political expertise that it would actually take to orchestrate the manipulation of an election with a foreign government, I don't know if the Trump campaign actually had that capacity to begin with. Rather, the argument that I buy is that the Russian campaign saw that they could manipulate this campaign and work with it to make gains for them, kind of playing off of their political inexperience, and that's maybe what they did. There was no active collusion, but the Russian government saw an opportunity to exploit an inexperienced campaign and did so. And thus, the campaign did not knowingly coordinate with the IRA in these online efforts. So that makes a lot of sense to me, but I'm reading in a lot to just one sentence in this already brief letter. I would also like to see what the report has to say on why this conclusion was reached and if this hypothesis is can be confirmed or denied. I also agree with that. I think it will be interesting to see the major points within the report and see how both politicians and the public interpret this information and what they think we should do with it moving forward. All right, and that will finish our wire service segment of the Wirecast podcast, we now go on the wire to our interview with Jonathan Godinez of Latinx Badgers. First of all, could you introduce yourself to our listeners as much as you feel comfortable? Yeah, for sure. So my name is Jonathan Godinez. I'm a senior here at UW-Madison studying psychology and entrepreneurship, and I am president of the organization Latinx Badgers and also vice president of the organization Latinx Student Union here on campus. All right. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for being here. So first I want to ask, could you just describe Latinx Badgers for our listeners who might not be familiar with the organization? What is the organization, and what kind of stuff do you, are you guys involved in? Most definitely. So Latinx Badgers is a predominantly Latinx-affiliated organization here on campus that deals biweekly with discussion issues that deal with Latinx cultural topics that are here on campus, out in the global community, and also just a, uh, a type of safe space that is able to be utilized for Latinx students to have a different type of environment where they can see people that are reflective of their identities and a place where the uh, different types of ideas and vulnerability can be vented out and discussions can be had that are productive and also welcoming for other students. All right. So speaking of issues that are prevalent to the Latinx community, I do want to ask you, Tony Evers has introduced a budget proposal that would extend 
tuition, in-state tuition at UW-Madison schools to certain undocumented residents of Wisconsin, mostly DACA recipients, but also other residents who have been in the state for a certain amount of time. What would this proposal mean for undocumented Wisconsinites? I think this type of proposal really does open up a lot of doors for Latinx immigrants here, not in the Madison community, but also in Wisconsin at large, just because it becomes an opportunity where students who didn't think that they would be able to get a higher education or even have that in their mindset, because most of the time, if they're not able to afford those types of opportunities, especially with in-state tuition and the high cost that it is here, even for out-of-state students, it becomes a big door opener for them and giving them a chance to gain an education where they actually didn't think they could actually attain it from. What kind of signal do you think this sends from the government to that community? What do you think it means for the community in terms of how they view the state government that this is something included in the budget? I believe one of the bigger ideas that comes out from this is that there's a lot more understanding of the value of what immigrants bring and also their children and the future generations of Latinx immigrants that come to the state as not only for educational opportunities, but also for the workforce, knowing that Latinx immigrants are part of the economy and are part of the livelihood of Wisconsin, it brings up a lot of impact into what the state can provide and also what the state can provide for its people, especially for the people that are residing in it. For sure. So then, to your knowledge, what resources are already available in terms of both financial resources and community outreach to undocumented students currently attending UW-Madison or other schools? Uh, I know there are some immigrant resources that are given throughout not only the Office of Financial Aid, but also the MSC, the Multicultural Student Center. But in terms of aspects or resources that are specifically targeted for Latinx students, it's more limited to organizations and the, the type of participation that is utilized for Latinx immigrants where it's much more, they have to put in the work for what they actually need for resources. But there are organizations such as not only Latinx Badgers, but also Latinx Student Union, Dreamers of UW-Madison, and also many other cultural organizations that have a lot of support for immigrant students here on campus and are willing to make, make and spark a change for them. So then it sounds like there's not very many financial resources available. So then since this budget proposal deals specifically with extending financial resources to students, how impactful would this be? It would be a game changer, I most definitely believe, in terms of the financial viability that immigrant students could be able to attend this campus. But there are still difficulties that are to be had once they arrive on this campus because not only is it just a financial burden to come to UW-Madison with some high tuition rates, even if it is in-state, but there's cultural aspects that go into attending a university here and just the differences in what one sees when they're at their local neighborhood and the people that can reflect who they are in comparison to coming to a university that doesn't really do that. Speaking of which, UW-Madison has historically struggled with a lack of diversity on its campus and being a predominantly white campus. Do you think that this measure would, and through opening doors to additional immigrant students, do you think it would help with that? And what would the value of that be on campus? I could see it having a good possibility of helping that, not only because, as you said, that this university is has always been kind of known as a PWI, but there are a lot of statistics of Latinx students here 
on campus and not only immigrants but just culturally that there are a very small percentage of students that are identified as Latinx here on campus and to be able to have some type of opportunity where more students are applying because they can see it now as more economically feasible and also that they can see that the university is trying to get more students like them involved it becomes a lot more of a not only inspiration for students to come here but also a source of value for this for not only the state as a whole the government but also the school and PWI that's predominantly white institution right yes, predominantly white institution all right thank you and then what do you feel like people don't know or don't understand about the experience of being an immigrant or Latinx on campus I would say the biggest thing that one sees from the eyes of a a person who comes from a minority background is that you understand that most of the time institutions weren't directly made for you and a lot of the times uh, the avenues and the perspectives that you see are not the ones that you're grown up with and also the things that are in the broader screen of things of not only the career workforce but also institutions such as universities and even philanthropic organizations a lot of the times don't put into mind the cultural barriers that come on with being a student of color here on campus, especially Latinx, but also the other types of just financial resource and cultural barriers that will have to keep, keep being crossed throughout the perspective of a student like that every day. So then when you look at budget proposals like this one, do you think that that is indicate that, that this is indicative of some the beginnings of an institutional change or are you not as optimistic it is a start i would i would optimistically say not to say that it it solves the entire problem not even close there are many other changes that have to be done with within departments at the university uh financial aid still has to be much more refined resources for latinx students once they arrive on campus have to be improved but many of those changes hopefully will start to come once we see a hopefully a larger inflow of Latinx immigrants coming onto the UW campuses. All right. And if you could say anything to Governor Tony Evers, what would you tell him? I would tell him that thank you for keeping in mind that there are barriers to institutions where some students aren't able to afford it, but there is still a long ways to go in terms of if you actually want other students who are not the primary students here on this campus to feel accepted. All right. And is there anything else that you feel like I need to know about this issue that I haven't really been asking about or I'm not touching on or anything that you'd like to emphasize? Uh, I would say that at the end of the day, the experiences here of a Latinx student don't only depend on attending this institution, but the steps that are also created afterwards. Because a lot of the times there's not many uh, pathways for students to succeed once they've even gotten the degree here. Either they've gotten some type of debt or they've gotten some type of financial burden or career burden where they don't know how to get to the next path in their lives. If there can be more opportunities for that for students in their lifestyles here on campus, I think it'd be very much beneficial. Mr. Godinez, thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Sam. Appreciate your time. And that's going to do it for this bi-weekly episode of The Wirecast on our official relaunch with the WSUM Podcast Network. Emily, 
thank you so much for being here. Of course. Thank you for having me. No problem. My pleasure. The Wirecast would like to thank WSUM, Madison's student radio station. We would also like to state that the opinions expressed on this show do not reflect the views of WSUM, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, or its Board of Regents. These opinions are only held by the guests on this show, and not The Wire, which takes no institutional positions. I'm Sam Beisman, and thank you for listening to The Wirecast.